We're going to be looking at James chapter 5. I love, I love the book of James um, in that, as you have seen, in fact, the little emblem I saw on our website is, and the theme over the book of James is that true faith is visible faith. True faith is a faith that can be seen. Uh, the New Testament doesn't really even know uh, any idea of what it means to be a Christian without it actually transforming a person's lives. That it's not some theoretical uh, exercise of assenting to the right beliefs, even though those things are very important. But those beliefs, those doctrinal truths, are things that actually are pressed down into our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit, and it's lived out in real time, in real life, every day, in your life, this last week, and today, and the next day, and next week. And so James is this incredible picture of what I call, gets down to the street level of life. It shows us a picture of what it looks like to live a godly life in Christ in the midst of a broken, messed up, and sometimes difficult world in which we live, in real life. Uh, that, that we aren't somehow, uh, be, we, we are become a Christian and somehow we're pulled out of the darkness and the difficulties and the suffering and the pain of life. But as Christians, in fact, we plop ourselves down right in the middle of it and God works in us and through us in the midst of the chaos. And this has the, been the themes of the book of James. I call, what an amazingly relevant book. The themes of this book, you could plop it down right over the top of last week's news and it is as, as relevant today as it was when it was first penned by James himself. Think about these issues. That, that our faith, James says, is evidence, it's made visible. We're going to read the text, by the way, just hold on. Our faith is made visible in these ways, right? It's evidenced in how we handle suffering and trials. Has that not been relevant in our lives and even in the midst of our body this week? And last week and the week before, it, it, our faith is evidenced in that we, we see our faith lived out. It becomes visible in how we handle not only trials and difficulties, but success, James tells us. How do we deal with wealth and finances? How do we handle temptations? Our faith gets lived out and seen visible in how we deal with the everyday temptations of life. And we, our faith gets evidenced in how we use our tongues, the very words that come out of our mouths, whether or not they give life to people or they tear people down, right? The reality of, of, of our faith gets lived out in the way that we talk, the way that we speak, the words that we use. The, our faith gets seen in how we care about the most vulnerable among us. James talks about in, in their day, in the first century, widows and orphans were the most vulnerable people in their culture. And he says that true religion is that which cares about widows and orphans. And the same is true with us. Our faith is evidence. It's seen in how we care about those who are most vulnerable. It's seen in how generous we are to those who are in need. It's seen in even how we plan for the future, we saw a few weeks ago. How we consider what the future looks like. And so James is talking to a people who are going through difficulties and trials in life. And he's calling for them to have patient endurance to endure, to persevere in the midst of, not in spite of real life, but in the midst of a broken, sinful, and messed up world in which people die and relationships are broken and difficulties happen. He's saying, here's a call for patient endurance, and if we are to be a people 
who are truly going to endure, if you are to be a man, a woman, or a child who is truly going to endure, if we're going to be a church, a whole body who is going to endure in the midst of the darkness and difficulties of this world, we must be a people of prayer. We must be a people who, who demonstrate our utter and complete dependence upon God, and prayer is one of those places that we do that most. And that's why James today is going to turn and he's going to call for his people to pray. So, with that in mind, let's stand as we read God's word. James chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 13. We're going to read down to verse 18. We stand to read God's word because we believe that this is God's word, that it comes from him with full authority, that it's inspired by him. Uh, and even as, as Nick already mentioned, it is profitable, useful to train us in righteousness. And so, let us hear the word of God this morning. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Well, let him sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. For the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed fervently that it might not rain and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word this morning. Lord, would you, would you strengthen your bride today? Would you bless us? Would you encourage us? Would, would your body today um, find ourselves at the end of this time even more and more uh, dependent upon you and even more at rest in your sovereign hands and working in this world through us. And God, may we come to understand today that you have chosen, by your sovereign will, you have chosen to accomplish your good purposes in this world through the prayers of your people, even us here this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. One of the great graces to us in Scripture that we see is that God, the Bible says that He is not a man, that He needs something. God does not need us, but He chooses by His incredible grace that is beyond our comprehension, to be honest. He chooses to work out His purposes through us. And in particular, one of those means of Him doing that is through the prayers of His people. God can do as he wills in any way that he wills, but he chooses graciously to accomplish his purposes through your praying and my praying, that he works through our prayers. And that should be today, I hope anyway, by the time we get to the end, should just cause us to be completely in awe that God would do that. And it should cause us hopefully to have a different understanding of our prayer life and the importance of it. And it also tells us that all of life, all of the Christian life, 
the, the normal understanding of the Christian life is that, is that every part of our life flows from the depth and the riches, richness of our relationship with God. Like that is the fuel of our life, our deep and rich relationship with God. And from that flows a prayer. And so, James is going to begin this passage by, we're going, to, we're going to see in this passage three different kinds of prayers. Now this isn't, uh, this isn't some exhaustive list of ways to pray. But in this context, in the book of James, he's going to tell these people, Here's, here's three ways that you could pray for each other. So I thought this might be a good way. But in these three ways that we see prayer happen uh, in the life of the church and in the life of the community, um, we see that these are prayers for, for comfort and for restoration. These are prayers that involve fellowship and relationship. And these are prayers that are powerful and effective uh, for the purposes of God. And so the first one we see here, and this is going to seem incredibly simple. But ask yourself this morning, how easy and simple is it? The first thing we see in verse 13, he says, is anyone, is anyone among you suffering? In fact, in verse 13, he gives two, two sides of the coin. He says, is anyone suffering? Let him pray. If anyone is cheerful, let him sing praise. And so the first kind of prayer and the first kind of praise, really, prayer and praise here, is an individual prayer. In other words, we ought to be people who pray for ourselves, are you suffering this morning? Is your soul this morning troubled and weighed down by the difficulties of life or whatever it may be this morning? Are you having physical troubles? He says, if you are suffering this morning, pray. First response, go to God in prayer. Lift your troubles up before him. I think of Peter who says, cast all of your anxieties upon him. Why? Because he cares for you, right? We have a God who actually cares. He's the creator of the universe who upholds everything, and yet he cares about your personal life, every tiny little speck and detail, every ache and pain, every sorrow, every anxiety, every little spat with your spouse, every little moment of anxiety over your kids. He cares about all of it. And so he says if you're troubled today, if you're suffering, then pray to God. This is your first response. Take it to the creator of the universe because he, above everyone else, he loves you. He cares for you. So you should pray. On the other side of it, he says, if anyone is cheerful, you should sing praise. And really, this is an act of prayer as well because, in fact, the word cheerful here is, is pretty cool. It really means to be well in your soul. The idea of this, this word is like ethume, and the first part of it means to be well and the second part of it is like this word that, that actually encompasses everything about your life. All your thoughts, your feelings, your motives, everything about your inner life. He says, so when you are internally in your soul well, when you seem all well, then also turn that back to God in praise. In other words, thank him and praise him for that. And in fact, in fact, it's not even in the absence of the suffering that he's talking about. I don't think he's simply saying, hey, when life seems to be going good, you can feel well, well. In fact, I think one of the great mysteries that the world around us sometimes can't understand is exactly what Pastor Nick described this morning. That you can have some of the deepest, darkest, most difficult moments in your life and still, even in that, you can be well in your soul. Because you have a God who gets the last word, right? You have a God who loves you and cares for you, a God who gives us hope that goes beyond the temporary, temporary nature of this life and this world, right? And so, 
And so here he says, hey, when things are well, even in the midst of suffering, pray and, and sing praise to God. Give God praise for that. And so that's the first kind of prayer. And I think in, thank, actually, in our lives, it may seem really simple. You're going through hard times, pray. But do you realize like, what that demonstrates about your faith and my faith? Like what I really believe about my life in light of who God is? That when I pray, I am making a statement that I, I am not adequate. I need God for everything in my life. That's the statement that it makes. And when my life, and trust me, I go through many prayerless moments in my life. When my life is prayerless, it also makes a statement, right? There's many times in my life where I'm literally, by my life, I'm demonstrating that I got this, right? I got it. I don't need God. I can take care of this. We even jokingly say that sometimes, like, yeah, I, I won't bother God with this, this part of my life because, you know, it's not that big a deal, right? God wants every part of your life, every tiny thing, right? And so prayer, personally, for ourselves is a statement that says, God, I need you. I need you to work in my life. And prayerlessness says, God, I don't need you. I got this. And the reality is, none of us have this, right? We think we have this until something tough happens, and then we find out we don't, right? We need to pray for ourselves, first and foremost, that God would comfort us. Secondly, second kind of prayer. In verse 14, he begins, he says, anyone among you sick, that word we're going to talk about in a minute, let him call the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The second kind of prayer is the prayer in which the elders of the church are called upon to go out and pray for someone who is sick. It's, it's actually an interesting word, this word sick here, because it, it's, it's a word, see, in our culture, actually, here, give you a cultural perspective. In our culture, we tend to separate things out in categories. We have our spiritual life over here, so we have our spiritual well-being, we have our emotional and mental kind of well-being over here, and then we have this other little pocket over here that's kind of like our God pocket, you know, and then we have, we, we have a, a physical pocket, you know, like we have our physical well-being, and we sort of separate these things all apart. But did you know that we're strange for that around the world? That's not the way the rest of the world, for the most part, thinks about their well-being. That's, that's actually foreign, not only to the rest of the world, but it's foreign to the Bible as well. In fact, I was reading commentaries on this with a lot of scholars about this, and I was really confused as to why there was such a big deal over the word sick. Like, there was a lot of, like, people would say, well, sick means this in this passage, or it means that. It's the physical. They're only talking about the physical needs, or it's only talking about the, the emotional, or, uh, you know, person's depressed and going through some kind of emotional struggle in their life. And, and they were really splitting hairs over this stuff, and so I'm just, I'm confused as to why they're having such a big struggle over this, other than they have a lot of theological presuppositions that they're trying to navigate. Uh, and so I, I couldn't figure it out. But then I, I started looking up the word in Scripture. And in the Gospels, Jesus most often refers to this word, uses this word for someone who is physically sick. Many times when Jesus healed someone, this is the same word that is used, this word sick in the Greek. He uses this idea to describe something that is physical. But in the letters, the epistles of the Bible, most often Paul and James and Peter often use this word to refer to a person who is weak. The word actually means, as well as sick, diseased, it also means to be extremely weak. And so, so you have 
people trying to say, well, which one is it? As if we have to separate them. Ironically, when Jesus healed people in the New Testament, what did he often say? You remember in Mark, in the Gospel, when the, the friends of the paralytic man, they cut a hole in the roof of the house because they can't get in to see Jesus, and they lower their friend down through the roof in front of Jesus, and he's preaching to the crowd, and Jesus stops, and he heals the man of his par paralysis, and then he says at the same time, in the same breath, and your sins be forgiven. You see, there was, there's a connection between the spiritual life and the physical life, between the emotional well-being and the spiritual well-being and the physical well-being of a person. These things are not disconnected. They have something to do with each other. It is the whole package that's important. And we tend to separate these things out. And in this context, and in every context this word is used, it is referring to someone who's at the bottom of life. Whether it's emotionally, mentally, spiritually, or physically, they have hit rock bottom. So much so that they need the elders of the church to come to them. That they have to cry out for help. Please, someone come and pray for me because I'm at the bottom and I don't know even how to pray for myself. Have you been to that point in your life? Where you've hit the bottom, it could just be in a moment or a day or it could be a whole season of your life where you have hit rock bottom and you're at the end and you don't even know how to utter prayers. And so James is saying, hey, when, you, when you're at this point, whether it's physical, spiritual, I don't think there's a disconnection. He's saying, when you get to that point, call the elders of the church and have them come to you and pray for you. Anoint you with oil in the name of the Lord. By the way, just to give you some evidence of what I was saying about the, there's no disconnect between these things, uh, the physical and the spiritual. Um, Psalm 32, if you want to read it this afternoon, the psalmist is in absolute anguish over the sin of his life. He's struggling with sin in his life, and he says that he is so weary that he cannot eat and he cannot get out of bed. In other words, he's depressed. His life is so weighed down by sin that it is physically affecting his body to where he cannot function on a daily basis. Have you been there? I've been there. Where it is so bad, and then he says this beautiful thing. He goes through this, and then he says, and then I confessed my sin to the Lord. And it's as if his life just came, came to life. All of a sudden, he's up out of bed. You get this sense in which there was relief. And God forgave the iniquity of my heart. And there's a sense of not only spiritual and emotional and mental relief, but a sense of physical well-being came over this, the psalmist David. You can see this in Psalm 102 as well, another great psalm to read, where physically, the spiritual, the emotional, mental, and physical lives are all connected. That these things all go together. Um, now, I do want to say that... Uh, we sometimes have a really strange thing when we get physically sick, we often immediately say to ourselves, oh, I must be living wrong. <laughs> In fact, when things are going well for you, right, we have a joke that we say. We say, oh, you must be doing something right because things are good in your life, right? You must, be, you must be living right. That was always the joke on the construction site when I was working construction, right? Oh, you must, you must be living well, you know? All is good, <laughs> you know? It's like... Uh, and we have this weird connection that we assume that if something's going bad, that must mean that there's a sin in my life. And I want to just say to you, that sometimes is true. Right? There, sin can lead, as I just demonstrated through the Psalms, it can lead to physical 
troubles in my life and all kinds of other conflict and all kinds of other consequences, it can be connected. We, in fact, see in the, in the Lord's Supper in Corinthians chapter 11, the issue that Paul says, he says, because some of you are inconsiderate and disobedient and being disrespectful in the, in the communion table, some of you have gotten sick and even died as a result of it. Like, that's a pretty serious statement, right? That, so there sometimes is a connection, but there's also times where it's not at all. John chapter 9, the blind man, right? The disciples have this strange thing. They say, so who sinned? There's a blind man along the road. He says, who sinned? The, the, the parents or the, or the man? Which is a really absurd comment, isn't it? Because the answer to the question is, everyone has sinned, right? It's somewhat of an absurd thing. But Jesus simply says, neither and he's not saying that either, either one of them are sinless. He's just saying he's not blind because someone committed some sin outside the norm, right? And Jesus says, in fact, he's blind. This man is blind so that the Son of Man may be glorified. And, and Jesus heals him of his blindness, and God is glorified through him as he goes back to the Pharisees. It's an interesting wrestling that we come to in our lives, but... I think, I think we have to be careful how we understand this, but we know from a Christian worldview perspective how we see the world that all conflict, all chaos, all sickness, all emotional struggles, all depression, the fact that all of those things exist is ultimately because of sin in general, right? It's because the world as a whole is broken and messed up. That's why we suffer at all. That's why we have relational conflicts that James talks about at all. This is why we have to wrestle with our tongues at all, is because everything is affected by sin. Not always so much your personal sin in that situation, but sin in general is behind all of it. And so, getting back to our passage here, he says, if you are sick, if you are at the bottom, call your elders. Call us. And we will come. And we are to pray for you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. There's another thing that's got a lot of ink, ink spilt over it over the years. What does it mean to anoint someone with oil? What's the oil about? And I've read so many things this week, and I'm just getting weary. And I think the biggest picture is it's simply an outward symbol of the very presence of God in a person's life. Um, I refer to uh, uh, Psalm 133. In the Old Testament, when they would anoint and ordain the priests... They would pour oil. It was a lot more messier than somebody just putting a little oil on. They would pour oil over. It says, in fact, in Psalm 133, it says that the, that the sweet fellowship and the community and unity of God's people together is like, it compares that, it's like the oil being poured over the head of Aaron, the priest, and running down through his beard. You can imagine, it's kind of this gross thought in some ways, but it runs down through his beard and lands on his clothes. And when they would do that to a priest, the priest, he would wash, it, wash his head at some point and his beard out at some point, but it, was, it remained on his clothes. The priest never washed it off. It stayed there as a visible sign of the very presence of God, that God was present on that person's life. Now, the, the oil itself didn't make God present, just like the oil here doesn't heal anyone, but the oil itself was a visible sign that God was present. When you anoint someone with oil, you put oil on someone, it's simply, a, I think, a visible way of just them reminding them for a little longer than the prayer, right? Reminding them that God is present in their situation, that he is with them. It's a picture of the Spirit of God being in a person and on a person. 
And then it goes on to say in verse 15, and the prayer of faith, that is when the elders come and they pray, and they pray the prayer of faith, it will save the one who is sick in whatever way they are sick. It will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. Notice who does the raising up. Notice the one who does the healing, whether it's physical, emotional, mental, spiritual. It is God who raises up a person. It is, it is not even because particularly the elders come at this moment, right? God is the one who raises up. When any one of us are in the midst of praying, God can do his work as he wills to do it. And, and so he says that when the prayer of faith is prayed, he will raise him up. And, and, and just, just in case we were wanting to see the, the spiritual dimension of this and the, the physical dimension potentially here, he says, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. That there's also this spiritual reality to it, that if, if, it's, if the issue in this person's life is like David, he will also be forgiven. Like God will step in in the midst of our praying and he will heal this person completely spiritually in that moment. Now here's, here's some interesting things. Um, does this mean, let's, let's throw some questions out here for a minute, does this verse mean that every time the elders come and pray for someone who is sick, say physically or in any way, that they will automatically be healed the way we think of it, right? Does that, is that what it means? Now everybody's saying no, right? And I know the, the reason why you may be saying that is because you know in reality, if that were true, then we would have no sick people because we would be fools to not, I mean, we would, we, it, would be, it would be that simple. We would go pray for every person who's sick, right? In fact, um, there would not be death, right? But yet people still get sick and they die. People still anguish in depression and struggle. And so what, is, what does it look like to pray? The, what does this mean if I pray the prayer of faith? It will save the one who is sick and God will raise them up. What does that look like? Does it mean that that's that this simply by praying for someone every time they will be saved? Um, that uh, there's a, a movement, in fact, in Christianity called the name it and claim it. If I, you know, if I just say it in the name of God, then it's going to happen. So be it. Um, actually, in the book of James, I think we just talked about how we can make plans for the future in a presumptuous way, assuming that we know what tomorrow holds. I think we can also pray in a presumptuous way as well. We can also pray in such a way as to presume that we know exactly how God will answer our prayers. Right? We can, we can assume that we know that that prayer is not answered unless it's answered according to the way I understand the world, the way I understand things. If, and the reality is that's, that's not how it works. Um, I love what... Uh, when we think of the Lord's Prayer, that they're doing that downstairs. And what does the Lord's Prayer teach us? What did Jesus teach us to pray? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we pray the prayer of faith, we are praying that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We may not understand fully what that looks like at the moment, what that means, but we are praying. Now, I do believe that to pray the prayer of faith means to pray with absolute confidence that we have a God who can do anything, right? When you pray, do you pray with that sense of expectation, with faith, believing that God can do whatever he wills in any situation? 
completely outside the bounds of space and time and our understanding of modern medicines or whatever it might be. In fact, I, 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 when I pray for people in the hospital or in difficult moments, I pray, God, heal them instantaneously, immediately, right now, in, in, the, in the words that I'm speaking, but if, or, or otherwise through the, the doctors and the nurses and surgeries and medicines, whatever it takes, God, do this work as you see fit, if the Lord wills. I think that's, in fact, what Jesus spoke in the garden, right? Not my will, but your will be done. And I think we have to be careful that we are praying uh, with confidence. Uh, the reason why I say with confidence, absolute confidence that God will work, because in James chapter 1, didn't it tell us that the person who doubts in their praying should not expect to receive anything from God? In fact, if, if, we're, if we're praying and we're really not really confident that God can do anything that we're praying for, um, James says, how should that person expect God to work at all? Right? And so we're going to see in just a moment, so hang on to this, uh, this phrase, because we're, we're going to see in just a moment through the example of Elijah what the prayer of faith, I think, looks like. So just hold on to this thought if you think I've somehow brushed over it. I have not. We're coming back. Let's go to the third way of praying. Just by the way, too, before I go to the third way, um, I should look at my notes every once in a while. It helps. Um, I've said this many times. You've probably heard me say it, but I really think it's the mercy of God to us that God, I think this is, for me, this gives me comfort to know that God answers my prayers better than I know how to pray them. Right? I think when we even think about individual prayer or prayer of the elders, we're thinking about we gotta, we got to have a just perfect kind of prayer or just the right kind of prayer, but but I don't think that's the way it works. Our prayers are sometimes, God, help me. God, please give me wisdom. God, please work in this person's life. God, please help me to be humble. God, please help me overcome my sin. There's all kinds of things, but God answers my prayers better than I understand how to pray them because I don't know often his perfect will in every situation, right? I don't know what's around the corner. I don't know how he's gonna work, but I trust that he is working and he will work, and he will accomplish his purposes, and I get to have this great privilege of being a part of it. And he does it through our prayers, amazingly. And so, thankfully, he answers them better than we know how to say them. The third way of praying here, right after he talks about uh, if, there, if our sins, if sins have been committed, we will be forgiven, he's, he transitions and says, therefore, in light of that reality, in light of individual prayer in light of having the elders come and if their sins will be forgiven. He says, therefore, confess your sins one to another. So he's going to move into another place and pray for one another. So I think a third area here that he's talking about is we need to be praying for each other. In other words, the normal Christian life, it's not unusual, but the, the normal Christian life is that we are a praying people and that we pray for each other, every one of us. That if you're a Christian, you ought to be a prayer. You ought to be someone who thinks about your brothers and sisters in Christ on a regular basis and you pray for them, right? And that doesn't mean that it's for all of you, that all of you can pray for each and every person sitting here, but you ought to be praying for those brothers and sisters that you know and that you are caring for and encouraging. That, that if you're a Christian, Christ, being a Christian, a normal Christian life means that you are a praying person. And you're to be praying for one another. And this has to do with relationship because it says, and you ought to be confessing your sins one to another. Now that... That's scary. Hold up. Whoa. So what we're going to do for the rest of the sermon today, we're just going to stand up one at a time. Don't be, don't be afraid. You know, 
And uh, we just want you to tell your deepest, darkest secret of what, you know, this last week went on in your life, right? <laughs> Nick's going to fire me. I'm never going to get to preach again. That's not what this means. But I don't want to minimize what it means because what it means is part of the normal Christian life is also to have relationships that are deep enough that you have people in your life that you can share your deepest, darkest secrets with, that you could share the sins and the struggles that you had this week. In fact, part of, I think, the, the great joy of Christian fellowship is, and part of overcoming the sins and the struggles we have in our lives is to be able to share them and talk about them with someone who's not simply going to judge us and, and put us down for the fact that we blew it this week in whatever way that that looks. We need people in our lives that we can talk about the nitty-gritty of our lives and confess our sins to one another and pray for each other, right? So do you have those kind of people in your life? Is your relationships deep enough that you could actually share that with someone, with people in the body? James seems to put it as a priority. Therefore, in light of the fact that Jesus forgives sins, in fact, let me just say this. I think this is an incredible exercise because I think as Christians we can become full of ourselves. I really do. I think the world sometimes looks at us and they think these people are full of themselves. They, they come across as though we have it all put together. And yet I guarantee every one of us sitting here this morning can think of incidents this last week that would say otherwise. We all know that we have weaknesses and struggles and challenges and that we battle remaining sin in our lives, that while we are forgiven and free of sin, we still battle this remaining sin. And when we are able to confess our sins one to another, it's a reminder of us not to be arrogant, not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. Or as Paul says, if you think you stand, take heed lest you fall. And he's talking about that and looking at other people's lives who might be sinning. And you go, you, you look at someone else who may have fallen into some trap of sin. And you go, well, at least that's not me. I wouldn't do that. Really? Paul says, you, if you think you stand, if you think you somehow have gone beyond the ability to fall, you better pay attention lest the enemy gets, gains a foothold in your life. Um, I was... One of the best examples I have, I've had many married couples over the years in ministry come into my office, and, and uh, at some point, usually it's the guy, uh, makes a comment, well, well and I'll, I'll make some comment about weaknesses of sin and, and uh, being loyal and faithful to your spouse, and they'll be like, oh, I would, never, I would never cheat on my wife. And my response was always immediate and decisive. It was like, oh, yes, you would. You darn well you would cheat on your wife. You would. Because the moment you think that you're above that, you will stop paying attention. You will stop trusting in God's grace and knowing that you need God's grace to be faithful to your spouse. We need to take heed lest we fall. And I think one of the means that God gives us to keep ourselves humble, to keep ourselves trusting God, is that we need to confess our sins one to another. We need to, and therefore, we also need to be praying for each other. That means we need to have fellowship with each other. We have to be in relationship with each other because you're not going to go up to a stranger and do that, right? That's, that would be strange. That would be weird. You need to be in relationship with people that you can share your sins. Um, he ends this passage uh, before we get into Elijah. He says, and the prayer, the prayer of a righteous person has a has great power as it is working. I really don't like that translation, actually. My, I think the ESV kind of made it more hard to understand. I think the old, the old translation is actually good. It says the effectual 
and fervent prayer. That is the earnest prayer, the effective and earnest prayer of a righteous person availeth much, which the word availeth means to accomplishes much. So the, I love that translation because I think it more accurately gives us a clearer picture that the effectual and fervent prayer of a righteous person, which is the only prayers that are offered, right? Right? That, that it is the person, being righteous simply means to be in a right relationship with God. It means to be a Christian. So he says, the effectual and fervent prayers of Christians who are in a right relationship with God, not based on your works or my works, but based upon the blood of Jesus Christ shed for you on the cross and your faith in it. He says, the effectual fervent prayer of genuine Christians accomplishes much. Isn't that encouraging? It accomplishes much. What does it accomplish? The very purposes of God in this world and in your life and through your life. That's incredible joy and gift to us, right? What an amazing thing. Uh, in fact, this means that our prayer life cannot be divorced from a holy life, from following God. Again, it flows out of the de depth and the riches of our relationship with God. Let me just, let me just tell you why this matters too. I, I found interesting, here's, here's several ways that your prayers can be hindered as a Christian. These are actually in the Bible. Here's, here's several ways. I'm just going to go through them really fast. Uh, James 4 verse 3 says that your sins can be hindered. In other words, you're praying to God, but there's a barrier, there's a block, there's something that's hindering the answer to those prayers or the effectiveness of those prayers. And one of them is in James 4 verse 3, he says it's selfish motives. In other words, he says, he says in James 4 verse 3 that you pray and you're only thinking about yourself. You only pray because you want to get for yourself. And he says selfish motives will hinder your prayers. And you could translate however hindered looks. Uh, I think we'll get clear in a few of these other ones, but it, it hinders our prayers. Uh, Proverbs 28.9 says, shows us that turning away from scripture, that if we are turning away from, from the word of God in our lives, that we will not be able to pray effectively and it will hinder our prayers. We will not understand how to pray. Mark chapter 11 talks about having an unforgiving heart or Psalm 66.18 says, having unconfessed sin in my life will hinder my prayers. Psalm 66, David says, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart. Not, he didn't say, if I'm sinful. That's a given, right? He says, if I cherished it. In other words, I'm not, I'm not putting sin away. I'm not, I'm not grieving it. I'm not trying to, to overcome it. I'm not trusting in God for that. I'm actually cherishing it. I'm enjoying it. I'm loving it. You know what it means to cherish something, right? It means, to, it means to absolutely love it and embrace it. He says, if I had cherished sin in my heart, you, God, would not have listened to me. Isn't that, that's a sobering thought, right? Uh, this one, he says, if, <laughs> here's an interesting one, family discord. Uh-oh. Men, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, he says, uh, this is pretty incredible. All the wives are going to love this today, right? This is going to be a good conversation on the way home today. 1 Peter 3, verse 7, write this down. This is important. Live with your wives in an understanding way and be sensitive to her needs. There's like a hush going over the room. And then he says, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Whew. There's ever a reason to have your marriage in order. <laughs> Guys, live with your wife 
in an understanding way and be sensitive to her needs. Otherwise, your prayers, otherwise, just like the psalmist David declared, God is not listening to you. Like, that's a pretty serious deal, right? <laughs> so there's a lot of guys going to go home. I think there's some work to do. I can see some faces out there. This is good. This is good. You didn't know this was a marriage sermon today, right? The thir- last way that our prayers can be hindered, and there's probably many others, but is doubt, right? We, we just said that Paul, or James says in chapter 1, verse 5, that for the one who doubts should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Like, doubt can hinder our prayers, that we doubt that God can work at all. We, we doubt his power. We doubt his might. And so, there's lots of ways. And so, what does it mean? The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous person, of Christian people, availeth much, um, that, that we need to be in a right relationship with God. We need to rightly follow him and pursue him in all of these ways so that our prayers will not be hindered. Um, I love the example, though. The example that he gives is Elijah. And this is so beautiful. And if you know Elijah's story, right, he's the one who took on the, what is it, 600 prophets of Baal. Uh, it was just him alone, 600 prophets against him, right? And they have this little duel, all right, you pray to your God for this sacrifice that's on the altar for, God, for your gods to come and, and burn it, you know, consume it, and I'll pray to my God and we'll see who wins. There's a bit of a duel here. Uh, and Elijah obviously won, God won, actually. Uh, and in this instance, though, he's, that's right after this instance where it says, he says here that Elijah prayed. First of all, he says Elijah was a man, a person just like you and I. Really? Elijah? With all the miracles and huge things that happened in his life, he's saying that you and I have the same nature as him, that we're just like him? We see, sometimes we read these stories of these people, and we, we put them on this pedestal, and we think they're like some superhumans, but Elijah is no different than you. That's what, he's, that's what James is saying. He's saying, the, the answer to your prayers, God's working through powerfully through your prayers to accomplish much, um, isn't because you're so awesome. <laughs> it's because God is awesome in you. And it's not because you're extraordinary. It's not because Elijah was extraordinary. It's because he was, a, he was a man just like us. In fact, in chapter 19, this is in 17, 18, and 19 of 1 Kings, if you want to read the story he's referring to. And in chapter 19, it shows him hungry, tired, and despairing of life, after God did all this stuff through him. He was a, a human being, right? He, he was afraid, scared for his life, after God had just consumed with fire the, the sacrifice on the altar. After God, he prayed that there would be no rain for three and a half years, and there was no rain for three and a half years, and then he prays that there will be rain, and there is rain. That guy, a few chapters later, is tired, hungry, and afraid for his life. He's human just like us. And James wants us to see this, that, that, that this is not some extraordinary human beings, that all of us are like Elijah, that we too, uh, in fact, here's an interesting thing. In the story that he's referring to here in Elijah chapter, or 1 Kings chapter 17, the shutting up of the heavens, or, or the rain stopping and there being a drought, this did not, here's what the prayer of faith means, by the way, this is not something that Elijah made up. Elijah wasn't sitting around, there was a season in in the history of Israel here where Elijah was living that the Israelites had turned completely away from God. 
And that's why there was this duel between him and the prophets of Baal. It was Jezebel, if you remember that wonderful queen in the Bible. Um, they were having this battle, Ahab and Jezebel. And, and, and the, Elijah didn't sit around and go, well, since you guys are disobeying God, let me see, what can we do? I know, I know, let's, let's cause a drought. He just thought this up in a little you know, conference meeting. Hey, let's have a drought. That'll teach him, right? No, Elijah didn't come up with this stuff. It didn't originate with him. It wasn't some novel idea that he dreamt up. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, God says for Israel that if you obey my commandments and follow me in all of my ways, you will have blessings upon your life. And he says, but if you disobey my commandments and you turn against me and turn to other gods, then you will have curses, right? And he describes them, part of which is drought. <laughs> he says, I will shut up the heavens and it will become like bronze. The ground below will be like iron, which if you're a farmer, you know that means rock-hard soil that's not going to grow anything. And he says, I will make the rain be like powder to you. And so Elijah was praying the prayer of faith. He was praying the very will of God. The very thing that God had already said, if you disobey me, these are the things that I will do. And he knows that God needs to work mightily to bring his people back, to cause them to repent. And so what does Elijah pray for? The very things that God has already said he will do if they disobey him. He's praying the will of God. I love what one commentator says, like every righteous person, Elijah sought to align his life with God's covenant promises and threats. He lived his life in the light of, God's, of the covenant God had made with him, and so he held to its threats of judgment in prayer as well as his promise of blessing. And, and then the commentator says, so this then is the prayer of faith. It's to ask God to accomplish what he has already promised in his word. And that promise is the only grounds for our confidence in asking. When we pray in accordance with God's will, it will, in fact, be done. Such confidence is not worked up from within our emotional life. Rather, it is given and supported by what God has already said in Scripture. And in places where we do not know the will of God that clearly, and those are lots of places, then we pray, right? We pray, God, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not my will, but yours be done. So, what are we to bring into conclusion to these things? A couple applications. I love this moment. Um, I love the moment in uh, C.S. Lewis's, the movie about C.S. Lewis's life, The Shadowland. If you've ever seen that movie, uh, C.S. Lewis was a, a professor who late in life, single man, became a Christian um, Late in his life as a Christian, he finds a wife, uh, a woman that he falls in love with, and she ends up dying, and it creates this incredible grief. He has a short season of his life that's just incredibly painful, and, and C.S. Lewis, who's a brand new Christian himself, a very sharp man, uh, and he, he's having this conversation in the movie with a friend that they call Harry, and I love this moment where he says, um, Lewis's friend says concerning his wife's battle, uh, with, with death, there was some good news that uh, Lewis had just received. Obviously, it ended up being temporary. And he receives this good news, and so he's, he's putting his coat on, he's rushing out, and this friend, who's not a Christian at all, who's kind of been antagonistic towards Lewis, 
He says, I know how hard, even though I'm not a believer, I know how hard you have been praying, and now God is answering your prayers. I love this point. This is the best part of the movie. Lewis turns and replies, and he says this, Harry, that's not why I pray. I pray because I can't help myself. I pray because I'm helpless. I, I pray because the need flows out of me all of the time in my waking and in my sleeping. And then Harry walks away and under his breath, Lewis says, it doesn't change God, but prayer changes me. I think that's a beautiful, beautiful picture. We pray because we need God. We pray out of this desperate need that flows out of us night and day. I had someone put it this way to me before, and let me just put, put it out to you this way. Um, if, how would your prayer life change and my prayer life change if I knew that my family, my children, my wife's health and security and safety every day depended on whether or not I prayed? If I knew today that my children, their life depended on me praying as a father for them, how fervently, how effectual would my prayer life be? It's an incredible way to think about it because in reality, it is that serious and far greater, right? It is life and death. It is our life. It's like breathing. Our need to depend upon and to cry out to God on a daily basis is absolutely crucial. And so let me just throw out a couple questions and we'll leave with you today. Is, is your first response to suffering and trials in your life, is it to turn to God and pray? Pray for comfort and to praise him for good? When you're, when are, are you in fact, and have you been in fact uh, at the point of being at the bottom of your life, and are you willing to call your elders and have them come and pray and anoint you with oil in the name of the Lord, praying for restoration in your life? Are you praying for one another? What did your prayer life look like this last week? Do we say to people, yeah, I'll pray for you, but we really don't. Are we people who truly and genuinely pray? Are we confessing our sins one to another and praying for other, others in that way? I think it's a beautiful picture of the gospel that the God of the universe, through his son Jesus dying on the cross, has paved the way that we can at any moment of our lives, at any second, even in this very moment, we can be directly in the presence of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, that we can take our concerns directly to him, knowing that the God of the universe actually cares about every detail that's going on in my life and my friends' lives and my neighbors' lives and my kids' lives. We can actually bring these things to our God, and he will answer. Isn't that amazing? We take communion uh, today. I'm assuming I'm going to do this. Let me just say, okay, <laughs> all right. So um, we come to the communion table as a picture, in fact, as a reminder of why it is that we can actually pray. That through Jesus' death on the cross, the barrier between us and God has been broken down. That sin, which keeps us from God, the scriptures say, has been removed. And now, we can be in the very presence of God. And so as we come to the communion table, we're reminded of the cost of such a great gift as to have fellowship with our God. And the cost was at the cost of his son, who died in the flesh on the cross for our sins and our place. And so let us take communion today and just be thankful, be amazed, in fact, 
that the God of the universe actually hears our prayers because of Christ. And he, he's eager, more eager than you are to pray them. He's eager to answer them and answer them better than you know how to pray them. Amen? So let us be a people of prayer, both tonight at, at the service, but everything in between, right? Let us be people who go to our God regularly for one another, for ourselves, and for those who are at the bottom. Let's pray. Father, thank